This episode of Accelerate is brought to you in part by Discover.org. Looking to close four times as many deals in half the time? Discover.org's industry-leading human-verified sales intelligence gives you all of the data and insights like direct dials, org charts, planned projects, verified emails, and executive moves. You need to stop wasting time on research and spend more time talking to the right decision maker with the right message at the right time. Their team of 250-plus sales researchers do all the work so that you don't have to. 2,500 companies are already using Discover.org to win more deals. So check them out at www.discoverorg.com. That's www.discoverorg.com. It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 535 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record where I hold my in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales marketing and leadership six days a week. Joining me on the show today is Steve Shapiro. Steve's a Hall of Fame speaker and author of a few books, including Best Practices Are Stupid, 40 Ways to Out-Innovate the Competition. I really enjoyed reading this one. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about why Steve thinks best practices are really just a form of business plagiarism. Then we're going to dive into some of his 40 strategies to out-innovate your competitors. One of my favorites, don't think outside the box, find a better box. Why challenge-driven innovation is a better approach than idea-driven innovation. If after you listen to the show, you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 535. That's the episode number. You'll find there a timestamp breakdown of this and all conversations on Accelerate. And in case you missed it at the beginning of the show, this episode is brought to you in part by Discover.org. Discover.org's industry-leading human-verified sales intelligence gives you all of the data and insights like direct dial phone numbers, organization charts, planned projects, verified emails, and executive moves, job changes, that you need to stop wasting time on research and spend more time talking to the right decision maker with the right message at the right time. So be sure to check it out at discoverorg.com. All right, all right, here we come. Steve Shapiro, welcome to Accelerate. Fantastic to be here. Hey, great to have you. So a question I ask all my guests just to start the show is, you know, you're, you, talk, you work with tons of companies, you've, you've run large organizations. You know, in today's environment, today's business environment, what, in your mind, what's the biggest single challenge facing sales professionals? Well, I think it's the single biggest challenge facing companies in general is differentiation. It's like, what do you do to help yourself stand out in a crowded marketplace? Um, and I think if you can get clear on your differentiator, whether it's a product you're selling, a service you're selling, or even if you're selling yourself, that goes a long way in speeding things up. Well, let's talk about that from an individual standpoint, because uh, the bulk of the audience, the majority of the audience listening to the show is our individual sales professionals, individual contributors. And this differentiation is really important, right? I mean, we see markets, places where the products are you know, easily commoditized and in the mind's eye of the buyer, everybody sort of looks alike. So this whole idea of how you sell versus what you sell really becomes important. I mean, what have you seen as, as the way that individuals can sort of best shape that, that differentiation? Well, I, I think part of it comes down to recognizing who you are as an individual. We all, I mean, the, the problem is everybody's trying to copy everyone else and then we are no longer unique. We're no longer special. And so part of it is to first figure out what makes you special. So for example, with myself, I know that people like to do business with me because I'm, I'm trustworthy. Uh, I have a very positive, uh, outlook on life. 
obviously I have content and things that I create a value, but people like to do business with me just because they like to do business with me. And therefore they become fans of me actually before they become fans of my content. And mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. in some respects a, a great place to come from. And so every person though has to figure out why would somebody want to do business with you, not your product, but why would they want to do business with you? What makes you special and who are you at when you're at your best? Well, I think that's that is really sort of one of the pressing issues I see in in sales today is is there's uh, and certainly in certain segments of selling, exists in the tech industry a lot is is that you know very process driven. Uh, you know, people are it's really activity based, right? People are really measured more on you know how many calls they're making, how many emails they're sending, and there's really a, a seemingly a, a premium sort of put on conformity to this process rather than what I see is, is okay, well, that's process is important, but how do we enable these individuals to, you know, bring themselves to the game, right? So they can differentiate themselves so they can add more value to the prospects. And that seems to be something as a profession we're really struggling with. I like the way you said it, bring themselves to the game. I think that really is, is the key is that individuality, I mean, for me, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I know in the past we've tried to use social media and other techniques, talking about my company as a sales tool, and I realized that just never worked. So what I decided is I moved to Orlando recently, and I'm using LinkedIn now just to meet people. I mean, I've met some of the coolest people. I don't talk about selling. I don't talk about myself. I don't talk about my products. I really just, I show a true interest because I am fascinated with People at Disney, people at Universal Studios who are creating fast passes or they're creating rides or, you know, sports teams, you know, how they're innovating sports teams or hospitals. And, and I just I become a sponge, which is excellent because it makes me more valuable with the knowledge I gather. But then I build these relationships. And what I've noticed is in a short period of time, people are saying, oh, I met with Steve and we talked about the great conversation. You need to meet with this person. Now, all of a sudden, my network's growing exponentially in just a matter of weeks just by being there and listening. And that's my style that, as opposed to maybe somebody else's style. But I'm saying that works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you, you found what works for you. I exactly. Mean, it, and I think, yeah, I think, as I was saying, it's one of the things I think we're struggling with is, and this sort of gets to the topic we want to talk about today, which is, is you wrote a, a very interesting book called Best Practices Are Stupid. <laughs> and first of all, great title, by the way. Thank and you. Uh, the hook, the hook was set very quickly. And yeah, I think this is one of the issues that, that plagues a lot of sales. So I want to sort of want to jump at this. So you say best practices are stupid. So why are they stupid? There's three primary reasons that they're stupid. The first one is sort of the obvious one, which is uh, if you're replicating other people, you're not innovating. So you aren't standing out. And and it's pretty much what we just talked about. It's mm-hmm. sort of this me too mentality. But it also leads to the second one, which we've been sort of alluding to, which is, you know, what works for one person, what works for one company doesn't necessarily work for someone else. There's a number of different factors. I mean, our wants, our needs, our desires, our personalities, our culture as an organization, these all drive what works. Uh, but it's the third one that I find most insidious, and that is uh, called the undersampling of failure. And basically what happens is if we are listening to some guru tell us how to sell or how to be healthy or whatever it is, we only are listening to the successes, the people who succeeded, but I guarantee you when I go to conferences and I listen to people talk about things that made them successful, 
I know literally hundreds, if not thousands of people who tried exactly the same things and they failed. But we don't tend to follow the failures. We only follow the successes. So we don't really have a good causation when it comes to a practice and its result. And so I'm not saying don't follow best practices. I I, I go to conferences and cl- take classes to study them. And, but you, I'm and really, you teach really, them. And I teach them, but I'm also really skeptical about it. At the same time, I always use the lens of, does this really make sense for me? Do I really believe this was what caused them to be successful? And as long as you use that skeptical lens, uh, then there is a time and place for best practices. Again, it's not innovation, it's replication. So uh, you can't use it as your sole strategy for success. Coming back to where we started, if you're going to be a unique individual Copying someone else means you're no longer a unique individual. Well, and you brought up a really interesting point, though, which is I, th- I think this is the uh, the meat of the matter to some degree is is this whole idea of causality, right? Is is I certainly see this in sales. Is there's certain segments of of industry where you know there are certain sales models that have taken hold that that people are near religious in their beliefs that this is how. You know, this form of product needs to be sold, and yet there's nothing from a data and a research perspective that says that this is working, or that it's working any better than any other alternative. Yeah. But, you know, there's anecdotal data that, you know, maybe has some correlations, but everybody always takes the correlations and say, well, see, this is the cause. Yeah, I mean, that's a, to me, there's causation, there's correlation, and then there's coincidence. I mean, there's just some cases where we talk about things and there there really isn't even a correlation between it. And we just have to get a little smarter with some critical thinking on that. Uh, having said that, though, here's an interesting thing. This is, this may seem like a tangent, but it's, it's something which to me is very profound. Uh, so one of my products, I'd been using it for about, uh, I mean, it's now over 10 years old, but when it was about the five-year mark, I decided to hire some scientists to do some scientific validation on this product. Mm-hmm. I knew it worked. I knew the impact it made in organizations because I saw it, but I didn't know if it was scientifically valid. So I wanted to apply some quantitative analysis to it. And the, sure. the guy who I hired said, he said, look, there's an important distinction between uh Valid, being valid, and being useful. And this guy was an expert in psychometric testing. Mm -hmm. And he said, we spent tons of money on developing statistically valid tests to determine if someone is depressed. He said, but at the end of the day, the most useful way to determine if someone is depressed is to ask them, are you depressed? (laughs) So (laughs) so he said, sometimes useful is more important than valid because something that is valid isn't necessarily useful in the real world. (laughs) <laughs> that's very very interesting well but and this is this is the sort of gets back to my point is is the data we do have shows that that you know and all this technology pouring into sales and yet we can't prove that it's making a difference it's not that it's not useful right i mean it is it is useful but it, it's not improving things it's, it's well, really, it's really, a, and it, to me, it's an interesting conundrum to sort of look at and say, okay, well, what, what's the next innovation that we need to have to say, okay, how do we actually use all this innovation? And it, look, if, if it's useful, but it's not producing results, then I would argue that's maybe not very useful. It's just well, something it's, to use. It's producing the same results. The same results. Yes. It's have. not producing new results. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. And that's the opportunity. 
that is the opportunity, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I love one of the term, <laughs> term you use in, in, I don't think it was in the book, but it was in a, a blog post or in a video that you did, was that that calling best practices basically business plagiarism. And I think it's a, I think it's a great a great image for people to sort of hold in mind when they look at best practices and just sort of say, okay, we've got to do it just this way. Yeah, I mean, it's it, we we have this mindset that we're supposed to be copying what everyone else is doing. And coming back to your first point, and I I, I just think this is really critical: is we need to find out who we are first, what makes what differentiates us and then fit things into that, not the other way around. What we tend to do is mold ourselves into a best practice rather than say, how does a best practice apply to me and my individual style and my individual wants and needs and my desires and let that be the compass rather than the practice be the compass. Mm-hmm. So let's let's look at some of the individual ideas you had about innovation in, in your book. Because I think that that... These have value for CEOs, you know, people listening to the show, CEOs, entrepreneurs, sales leaders, and the individuals themselves. And just sort of start right at the beginning is one of your first ones is that asking for ideas is a bad idea. So what do you mean by that? Well, I think this is one of the biggest mistakes that companies make is they start off innovation and they equate it to a big suggestion box. And they ask their employees for their opinion, suggestions, and ideas, and they get hundreds or thousands, or in some cases, tens of thousands of ideas. And they start sifting through these things and they quickly realize there's not a lot of value in here. So what they need to do is somehow in those situations, find the hidden nuggets and extract as much value as they can for them and then not piss off the other people who put, you know, their ideas into the system. And they didn't do anything with it. So the, to me, asking for ideas, just it, it's a recipe for failure because everybody has an opinion, suggestion, or idea. It doesn't mean it's good. Dirty Harry once said, you know, opinions are like, he yes. didn't say this, but he said opinions are like butts. Yes. Everyone has one. Right. And in my opinion, most of them stink. You know, that's so we, we need to stop asking people for their ideas because everybody's got one. So, yeah, if you're sort of at that moment where you think, okay, we're in a situation where some innovation is needed is so if you're not asking for ideas what are you doing so what we've found that is by far the most successful way to drive an innovation program is to shift away from an idea centric innovation program to what i would call a challenge centric innovation program which basically means instead of unbounded questions because if you think about it a suggestion box is still asking a question the question might be how do we improve the business And then we ask people to provide their answers to that. But if we get more specific in the questions that we ask, if we get better at the questions we ask, so instead of how do I improve the business, but how do I improve revenues? Okay, well, what aspect of revenues? And so as you start moving away from ideas, which are usually very abstract, and you move them towards finding solutions to well-framed challenges, we increase the ROI and innovation a minimum of tenfold. In some cases, it's an order of magnitude greater uh, value because we get people focused on what matters, what's important, what differentiates us. And before we get started asking for answers to these questions, we have everything lined up in terms of sponsorship, ownership, resources, money, time, and we have qualitative uh, and quantitative evaluation criteria that allows us to objectively choose what are good answers. So it's a just a massively different mindset moving towards questions 
rather than ideas. Well, I think the the title you had of that chapter for that specific tip really was a great a great title, which is say don't don't think outside the box, find a better box. Right. You know, as you said, rather than you know, you're trying to find these these global ideas. Look at what you're doing and and set up your challenges that will drive the innovation. They'll take you one step further where you want to be. Yeah, and and you know, coming back to don't think outside the box. The, the problem with thinking outside the box is the more abstract the problem you are solving, the more the the fluffier the solutions you get, and usually the lower quality and the lower relevancy. Mm-hmm. So when you change the but the the issue isn't that you need to think broader. The problem is we're looking in the wrong place. Uh, can I give you a quick story on that, which I just think is so, sure, it's, absolutely. It's, it's so powerful. Uh, and when you hear it, people are like, oh, oh, wow, that's like like crazy. So short version of the story. Airport had a problem with this baggage claim, took way too long. Uh, basically, on average, it took 15 to 20 minutes for the bags to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So they decided to fix the problem. How do we speed up the bags? And they went off and spent a ton of money on faster conveyor belts, more baggage handlers, newer technology. And they got it from 15 to 20 minutes (laughs) down to eight to 10 minutes. And so that's pretty good. I mean, if you look at it and you improve something by 50%, you're going to say that's a success. But they asked the passengers of the airport, are you happy now? And the passengers still felt that was too long. So they knew they couldn't really go any faster. It just cost them so much money to get to that point. And then they had what I like to call an epiphany. They realized it took the bags eight to 10 minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. But the passengers at this particular airport only took one to three minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So instead of speeding up the bags, what they do you think they did? They slowed up the passengers. <laughs> they slowed down the- <laughs> Exactly. They literally reconfigured the airport so it would take, on average, eight to ten minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. Their bags are waiting. And so I love this as just a very simple example because we confuse the speed of bags with wait time. Right. They're not the same thing. And I always like to say, look, if you spend your entire life trying to speed up bags, you will never think to slow down the passengers. And this is the biggest issue, is it's not that we need to broaden our thinking, we're just looking in the wrong place for solutions. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> All right. Um, I started trying to cherry pick some of these I thought had real relevance for sales. One I thought was the Goldilocks principle. So explain what that is. Yeah, so we, we touched on a little bit of that, one aspect of it. So Goldilocks and the three bears. Mm-hmm. Goldilocks goes in a house, Three beds, one's too soft, one's too hard, one's just right. Well, the same thing is true with the questions we ask. We either ask questions that are too soft, too abstract, too fluffy. So that's the how do I improve revenues or how do I increase sales or whatever it might be. Right. Those invite a lot of abstract, fluffy, irrelevant solutions. But on the flip side, we sometimes ask questions that are overly specific, uh, and that's the too hard. And and what I mean by that is they are either framed in a way that they imply a solution. So they're actually a solution masquerading as a question. Yeah, a leading question. A leading question, exactly. Right. Or they're so narrowly defined that the solution can only come from one small, very specific place. Right. So – like just one one very simple example on this, NASA was, uh, you know, sent people up into space and, you know, our clothes get dirty. So what they wanted to do is take a washing machine from Earth and bring it up into space, recognizing that gravity doesn't exist in space, so washing machines don't 
work. So they ran a challenge called the Zero Gravity Laundry System Challenge, which was all about taking a washing machine from Earth and bringing it up into space. Clearly, that's very complicated. It's very past-based. So when they moved away from a washing machine as the problem to how do we get clothes clean, they got a different range of solutions. It had nothing to do with pumps, valves, and pipes, but now it's about cleaning solutions. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is you could change one word in that, how do we get clothes clean, to how do we keep clothes clean, and now you've got a completely different range of possible solutions. Now it's talking about material science. So you could change one word in a question and get a fundamentally different range of answers. And that's really, to me, the most important thing here is that we need to recognize the questions we ask, the words we use, the language and conversations we have with our customers and our clients and our prospects all drive particular behaviors and beliefs in their mind. Right. No, I think absolutely. And as you talk about, you have the, your grid that you had in the, the book that, you know, some are Sometimes you get a solution that's too big, and sometimes you get a solution that's too small. You have to find the solution that's just right. And this is this big challenge in, in sales, right? Because oftentimes just, companies will send out salespeople armed with these sort of scripted questions that, yeah, sometimes are either too big in terms of the solution that they're trying to sort of put forward and the questions they're asking the customers, or as you said, sort of leading questions, too narrow. You know, the only relevant answer is something that points directly to your product. And yeah, that's just too small for the customer, right? Yeah, if if you become masterful at asking better questions and and not letting your your product drive the questions, but you really come from a place of truly understanding where someone is, then first of all, they feel as though they're coming to the conclusion themselves. So they don't. It's not a push, but it's a pull. Yeah, ownership. We right. keep, it's ownership exactly. So if they feel like they came up with the answer. Now, all of a sudden, they're like, I need a solution. Well, guess what? I've got a solution, and we can tailor it to meet your specific needs. Right. Now, another one that I thought was really interesting, and this is a little controversial these days, because we're seeing more and more sales uh, come inside, sort of be inside sales-oriented, but is your lessons from Indiana Jones, which is that you know, it's just don't survey your customers, but you have to go observe them in action. And this is, to me, this was a powerful one, because I so believe in this and i think that companies that have sort of adopted the inside sales model are a little too dogmatic in, in how they apply it because there are times when there's no substitute for going and seeing your customer and what they're really doing well i that's that's spot on i mean i think one of the challenges we have is especially today with big data and analytics and all of that we we seem to believe that we can analyze things to find answers that are across the board. The problem is, first of all, for the most part, big data gives us past-based information because we only have data about the past. Uh, But more importantly, especially in the context of what we're talking about here, it only allows us to understand the, the, the norm. It doesn't allow us to understand the unique situations. And so, you know, we need to don our fedora, whatever Indiana Jones wore. We need to go out there and actually act as a cultural anthropologist and observe people and see people in the wild. Some of the best innovations come from observation rather than analytics. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me is just, you know, because the problem with surveys is you ask people a question. First of all, most surveys, coming back to what we said before, most surveys are designed 
in such a way that they lead the witness to answer a particular way. Well, I want to find out about my product, so I'm going to ask a question. And of course, you're going to get the answers you want. You can frame a question any way to get any particular answer. Yeah, well, it happens it, consciously but, or unconsciously, too. So, Well, exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, so this is what we do as the survey creators. But then, unfortunately, on the survey taker side, they're also answering in ways that they think uh, – will be the right answers. We don't want to get the wrong answers. And so we're answering at a very conscious, consciously thought through perspective. But the reality is people make buying decisions not with their consciousness, but actually with their subconscious beliefs. Mm -hmm. And we need to tap into those subconscious beliefs in order to better understand what it is that drives their true behavior. Yeah, and well, and you reference this a little bit later in the book when you talk about the importance of viewing the world through a different lens. And, you know, this is, this is tough. This is a challenge for people, right? As you talk about, look at, look at the impact of big data. Um, because, you know, data has this tendency to sort of enforce our confirmation bias. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's a great story in this biography that came out, or a book that came about, about uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign. And, um, yeah, there's sort of this anecdote the authors have in there is that, you know, at one point, Bill Clinton suggested to you know, his wife's campaign managers that considering sort of what happened in Europe with, uh, or in, in the UK with Brexit, that they might be underestimating the strength of, of the populist vote, right? And the populist sort of tied. And you know, the campaign manager looked at Bill and said, yeah, well, the data runs counter to your anecdotes. Mm. <laughs> and so when, it's, when they were sort of suggesting, well, maybe you need to factor in like three or four extra points in the polls for your opponent, Given what's going on, you know the answer was, nah. The data doesn't doesn't support that, and so data sort of creates this false certitude and and hubris, if you will, that ultimately becomes self destructive. That's a great example from so many different perspectives, and I love where you started with it, which is confirmation bias. I actually think confirmation bias is one of the biggest enemies of innovation, because when we get a belief in our mind that something is a great idea we are going to, at a subconscious level, start running experiments that confirm our beliefs. And sure. even when we run experiments that disprove what we believe, the brain sort of ignores them. And so this is why when we talk about failure, this is a great segue to, I think, which is an important topic, is when we talk about failure in organizations, and th there seems to be this mantra right now that failure is a good thing. And I really don't believe failure is a good thing. I think failure is terrible. We don't want to fail. If we can learn without failing, I'd rather do that. And the key is experimentation and proper experimentation. And the problem is most of the time when we do uh, experiments – we follow something which is called a positive test strategy, which means we are designing experiments uh, in a way that's designed to prove that our idea is a good one, but rarely do we specifically design experiments to disprove what we are doing, and we end up implementing things that we should not be implementing because of confirmation bias and positive test strategy and other things that, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. drive us in the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, there's so much you know, human nature wrapped up in that whole that whole statement, right? It's it's uh, you know, there's a reason the confirmation biases are sort of easy because it's easy. It's less taxing on the brain. Yes, you know, it, it fits our pattern of the world as Kahneman talks about, thinking fast and slow. So it's yeah, it, it, we 
<laughs> it takes a conscious effort to sort of fight back against that. Well, and you you, you know mentioned politics. I mean, it, it's very interesting to watch politics with it with an unbiased lens, and really look at how the role of confirmation bias and these other biases and how they play. And it's it's just really fascinating. And the divisiveness that exists right now is really just a result of confirmation bias. I don't think there's any other explanation for it. And again, it's not a statement of for or against any, I mean, it's just about human behavior. And I've done a lot of work in Capitol Hill and I've seen that in action all the time. I mean, if I'm, if I'm on one side of the house, one side of the, the aisle, everything I hear is through the lens of what I believe to be true and anything else is ridiculous. On the other side, it's the same thing. And that drives so much of what we do as human beings. Well, yeah, and I think that part of that is due to sort of the phenomenon we touched on earlier, which is this you know ever presence of more data, right? And one of the mm. one of the things that's happened over the last ten fifteen years, certainly in online reporting, but reporting in general is you know increased use of of data and and infographics and you know ways to present data. And you know, I had a guest on the show um, a few months ago, John H. Johnson, wrote a book called Every Data, which is about basically how we misuse the information we could, we consume every day. But it's sort of, you know, it's set up to be eye-catching and, and you know, plays to, the bottom line is it plays to, you know, one side or another's confirmation bias. Right, exactly. So, so we're I mean, getting our confirmation bias reinforced more frequently and, and more emphatically just through the way we, you know, present and consume information this day. So so last one I wanted to touch on with you, the time we have, have left, was that um, simplification is the best innovation. And I, I love this because I certainly in sales, what we're seeing is actually sales processes and sales methodologies, in part because of of the new tools available, really becoming more complex. And again, if we're trying to solve for the problem that, hey, our overall we've got all this technology and our overall productivity isn't isn't increasing, then maybe the answer is is not to be more complex, but to be more simple. Yeah, I think that the the key with all innovation is to recognize that adding more features and functions to technology, and even when it comes to selling, sharing every feature and function just confuses things. And a confused buyer never buys. Uh, you think about a remote control for your TV. It can basically, you know, I, I think it could cook my eggs if I knew which combination of buttons to push. But my my favorite remote is the one that comes with my Apple TV because it's got a fast, you know, <laughs> pause and a play and a couple of other things and that's it. And, you know, really, really simple and streamlined. And I think the same thing when it comes to selling, uh, I think what we need to recognize is that people will be interested in what you have to offer when there are three things in place. Uh, the first thing is they have to be discomfortable, they have to be uncomfortable or dissatisfied with the way things are today. So if they're happy enough, the barrier to get them to change, to buy your product, to work with you, if they are happy enough with your competitor or their current situation. Uh, so the first thing is mm -hmm. to create discomfort. The second thing is they have to be able to envision a better future. That's the easy one. What can we do? But then the third thing, and this is where simplification comes into place, is they have to believe that the amount of energy uh, in terms of time, cost, money, implementation, risk, disruption to the business, that it's worth the effort. And so 
you can simplify your products, but in some cases, what people really need is the simplification of implementation because they need to feel as though the amount of energy it's going to take to actually switch over to what you have to offer is going to be worth it. And in many cases, you might have a better solution, but in their mind, those barriers to implementation are greater than the benefits, and then you're going to lose. Yeah, and I think there's even an intermediate step there, which is the the barriers to making a decision. Yes. And so the degree to which you can simplify the whole process of the customer gathering the information they need to quickly make a decision is huge as well and a, and a big differentiator. And I, and I think one of the things we get caught up on, and it's interesting on your take on this as sort of the last point is, is that you know we seem to be so focused on, like I said, methodologies and processes, but very little on sort of like core principles. And so for me, for selling, it really boils down to like you know three or four core principles, irrespective of the method, right? If you if you're selling evinces these these core principles, then you're making things really simple. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I look, I'm a sax player, and one of the things which I used to do is I'd bring my sax on stage and I would have a jazz band and I would just start, I would say to the band who I'd never talked with before mm-hmm. the event, 12 bar B flat blues. And we just start jamming for 10 minutes. And I would contrast that with a symphony, which is the processes. It's the methods, it's the steps. And there's a right way and there's a wrong way. There's a right note and a wrong note and there's timing and all of that. And, but the reality is, you know, to me, simplicity is jazz. And those principles that you're talking about are that 12 bar B flat blues. I don't need the sheet music when I have the principles. And when I have principles, I have adaptability. And to me, adaptability gives me innovation. Love it. Love it. Well, we're going to end it there. That perfect way to sum it up. So Stephen Shapiro, thanks for being on the show. Tell folks how they can find out more about you and connect with you. Uh, Best way to find me is steveshapiro.com. Excellent. All right. Very simple. Well, again, thanks for being on the show. And friends, thank you for spending this time with us today. Make sure you come back. Join me again tomorrow another great episode of Accelerate. Until then, if you get a chance, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you listen to the show and subscribe. Leave a review. We'd love to hear what we could do to make this a better experience for you. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. 